Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 127 with Matt Bodner. Matt is all about being high leverage in the Archimedes sense of the word. Give me a place to stand and lever long enough, and I will move the world. That's what's up. Matt's about getting big results per unit of effort, and he thinks decision-making is one of the finest ways to do that. So you're going to learn, one, why decision-making skills are a timeless key to being high leverage. Two, approaches to build a powerful toolbox of mental models. And three, how to apply the 80-20 principle to life and work decisions. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or links to some of the items that we are referencing here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep127. While you're hanging out at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you sign up for some of our best goodies, which include the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course with some fantastic tools to slash waste out of your work week and do more meaningful stuff or go to home sooner, whichever is more important, as well as the Gold Nugget email list, which has the summary wisdom from each guest in an email that shows up in your inbox each morning there's a new guest, and you can read that in under two minutes. So here's Matt's story. Matt Bodner has been named to Forbes' 30 Under 30, called a rising restaurant star by the National Restaurant Association and a strategy pro by Restaurant Hospitality Magazine. He's a partner at early stage investment firm Fresh Hospitality. Bodner joined Fresh in 2011 after several years at Goldman Sachs. He sourced and led the firm's investment in I Love Juice Bar, vertical farming startup Square Roots, Vui's Kitchen, Grilled Cheesery, and several more deals. Bodner is a board member and works closely with a number of portfolio companies, including Tzatziki's, I Love Juice Bar, Martin's BBQ, Octane Coffee, and Fresh Technology. Bodner is also the co-founder of Fresh Capital, which focuses on commercial real estate investing and development. He also hosts the Science of Success podcast, which has received nearly a million downloads. Here's Matt. Matt, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thanks for having me on here, Pete. It's an honor and I'm very excited. Oh, yes, I am excited too. And so I first want to hear in your LinkedIn, which is fun, what do you mean by saying that you are an accidental podcaster? It's quite a story, but the sort of short version is, I guess for my quote-unquote day job, I'm an investor and I'm a partner at an investment firm. And sort of as a project, a side project, I'm the creator and host of a podcast called The Science of Success. And without getting super deep into the story, because it's a sort of a convoluted and lengthy story, but essentially, you know, being an investor, at some point in time, it dawned on me that, hey, maybe I should study the smartest investor of all time, aka Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. And I started reading pretty much everything that's written by Buffett, everything that's been written about Buffett. And through that, I really got into another guy who's Charlie Munger, who's Buffett's business partner, an incredible thinker and writer and really, really smart guy. And through reading all of his stuff, I just got down this huge rabbit hole of like psychology and decision making and all this stuff. And I had a number of kind of what I would call like kitchen table conversations, you know, just sitting around talking about these things with friends and fellow entrepreneurs and other people. And a buddy of mine owned this sort of small science news website a couple years ago. He actually ended up selling it. But he told me, he was like, hey, dude, let's take all this stuff and turn it into a podcast. And I was like, 
okay, like I don't know anything about podcasting. I can talk about this stuff. But you know, if you can help with all the other pieces of it, we can kind of figure it out. And so that's what we did to sort of initially launch it. And we launched in the fall of 15. And through the end of the year, we'd had about 7,000 downloads. And then we really hit kind of a much steeper growth curve at the beginning of 16. And to date, we have over 780,000 downloads, listeners in over 200 countries. And it's really taken off a lot more than I ever anticipated. And through that sort of process, the spring of last year, almost a year ago, my friend ended up selling that website. And he kind of went on his way and we had an agreement and part of the kind of agreement when we put the podcast together, I basically said that if he leaves, I have the opportunity to take over the podcast full time. So that was good and bad in the sense that I got to kind of steer the ship in my own direction. But I also had to figure out, you know, how do I do all this stuff like audio production and all of these other things? And so that's kind of why, you know, by trade, I'm really more of an investor, but I have sort of stumbled into the world of podcasting and found it to be something that I really enjoy doing. Oh, yes, it is a blast. And so I have so much to ask about with regard to decision making, what you've learned, which is what we'll hit. But first, I'd love to know, because I think a few of our listeners are maybe gunning for this honor. You are a Forbes 30 under 30. So that's cool. Congratulations. Thank you. How did that come about? And what's it like when you're mingling with those <laughs> rarefied achievers? <laughs> I will, I'll answer the questions in reverse. The crazy <laughs> thing is like, I honestly, you know, it's weird because I always strive to try and, you know, achieve as much as I can and be as successful as I can. And being in that group of people, like, I feel like a nobody, you know, yeah. and it's funny, like sometimes that sort of imposter syndrome, like never really goes away. And I mean, I was looking at like some of these people who are working at companies like Planetary Resources, which is mining asteroids. You know, they're trying to mine asteroids for resources. And I'm thinking like, man, I'm over here like investing in growing companies and that's it. And these guys are building satellites to go mine asteroids. So it's definitely intimidating in some ways, but it's good and it's really exciting. So to answer the first part of the question, which is how did I get into the Forbes 30 under 30? It's pretty interesting. You know, whenever I see something that I want to achieve, the first thing I try to do, or, you know, I think one of the most successful kind of strategies for achieving that is just finding somebody who's done it and asking them how they did it. Right. And so I found a couple people, and actually, really, the most fruitful was I actually went to a conference. It's a conference called 212 in Colorado. And it was last. I guess last summer. And there was a speaker there who had been in the Forbes 30 to 30. And I kind of went to a session. It was about something that wasn't really super relevant to my world, but I kind of, you know, waited through the whole thing. And then at the end of the session, I came up to him and asked him, I was like, hey, you know, I waited till kind of everyone else had left. And I was like, hey, can I just ask you, like, how'd you get on the 30 under 30? And the best piece of advice he gave me was to get previous 30 under 30 winners specifically in the category, because for those who don't know, it's broken out by categories. So it's not just 30 people across the globe. It's 30 people per category for a number of different categories, things like, you know, science, education, food and wine, you know, a bunch of different, there's like 15 or 20 categories. So it's a few more people than than it seems when you say 30 under 30, it's actually like, you know, four or 500 people actually, but across a diverse sort of array of industries. But anyway, he said, Find previous winners in your category, get them to nominate you and get them to talk to 
some of the judges and some of the editors, because I guess sort of going through that, you end up meeting and getting to know those people and just have them basically put in a good word for you, right? And say, hey, you know, this guy's legit, like, blah, blah. And you obviously have to be doing something, at least to some degree, that's kind of worthwhile mm-hmm. and merits consideration at sort of, you know, on some level. But that was the best piece of advice that I got. And so what I did was seek out a couple people who were in the category that I was in and, you know, reach out to them, talk to them and ask them, you know, kind of get to know them a little bit and ask them, hey, like, would you be willing to nominate me? Would you be willing to potentially like kind of put in a good word for me and got that, you know, sort of things worked out and I ended up making the list. That's great. And so I'm curious then, as you did that networking, when did you make your ask? Or was that on the front end? Like, hey, you're 30 under 30. I want to know you. Or was that more so, hey, you know, we're both in the restaurant biz. You know, I'm really interested in the cool stuff you've done. It'd be fun to swap notes. You get to chatting and then you sort of inserted that toward the end. How did that unfold? It was fortuitous in some ways because there were two people that were in the industry that were kind of peripheral connections. There are people that I had met but I hadn't really formed any sort of meaningful relationship with. And so I took it more from kind of an informational approach and essentially said, Hey, could I talk to you about 30 under 30? You know, I want to know like, what, you know, how did you do it? Like, you know, what were the secrets? Like, would you be willing to offer me any advice? And like, you know, would you be willing to help me out? And, you know, I think a lot of people that are really successful often are focused on how they can help other people too. And so they were very kind and willing to help me. And like, I, you know, almost didn't have to even ask them. They're like, yeah, dude, I'll definitely put in a good word for you. And like, you know, talk to the editors and all this stuff. And I mean, part of it too, was because like I said, we were sort of peripheral to each other's network. So they were somewhat familiar with some of the stuff I was doing and thought it was interesting. And that sort of definitely helped kind of propel them to be willing to speak to the editors. That's cool. You know, and I'm totally resonating with what you're saying there. I remember when I got my job at Bain and company, I felt like an imposter at times, like, I'm used to being the smart guy in the room and now I'm average to slightly below average (laughs) in this room. And when folks likewise wanted to get in, I was happy to share. I was like, oh, hey, here's what I discovered. Here's how you do your case interviews, yada, yada. And so that's great stuff. So now let's get into the meat here. So you learned a lot about decision-making in your exploration of investors in terms of what they're doing, how they go about making those decisions. So, you know, we're not talking about investments per se, although that can show up from time to time in terms of professionals rocking it. But, you know, what were some of your key takeaways in terms of overall philosophy to doing decision-making well? You know, before we delve into that, I think it's important for listeners to understand why should you think about studying decision making? Why does it matter, right? Out of all of the kind of information out there in the world, everything screaming for your attention, why should you devote time and energy to thinking about and studying and improving your ability to make decisions? I think the fundamental reason why it's so important, and there's a couple of sort of subcomponents of this, but the fundamental reason is that decision making is sort of like compound interest for your brain, right? And a 1% improvement in your ability to make decisions cascades through everything that you're doing in your entire life, right? So if you improve your ability to make decisions, that's going to impact how you think about applying for and pursuing another job. That's going to think about how you purchase a car. That's going to think about how you select you know, a life partner. That's going to impact how you think about how you invest your money, all of these different things. And so to me, focusing on... And one of the questions that I spent and it's still something I think about all the time. But one of the questions that I've spent years kind of ruminating on is 
how can I be as high leverage as possible? And by that, I mean, there's a nonlinear relationship between time and value creation. Mm -hmm. And that's really brought to bear if you think simply about somebody like Bill Gates. Bill Gates doesn't have, you know, 10 billion times more time than I do, but he has produced 10 billion times more value. And so at some point somewhere, it wasn't a question of him working harder. It was a question of him doing something that was more high leverage. And so to me, I've really spent a lot of time thinking about how can I be as high leverage as possible? And one of the fundamental principles that I've come back to again and again is that focusing on the ability to make better decisions is one of the most high leverage things that you can do. It's one of the ways that can truly have a cumulative, again, thinking back to the concept of compound interest, which Einstein called, you know, the eighth wonder of the world. It has sort of a cumulative impact that builds on itself and impacts everything that you do from that point forward. And one of the other kind of core components of that idea is the notion that you should try to focus on. And I think the art of decision making and focusing on decision making is well within this kind of wheelhouse. But I'm a huge proponent of the idea that you should try to focus on studying knowledge that doesn't change over time, right? If you invest a ton of time and energy reading a book about the latest hot new marketing tactics and, you know, how to do Google AdWords and all this stuff in a year or two, a lot of that stuff is going to change in five years. It will be almost totally irrelevant. And so investing in tactical and highly specific knowledge that changes rapidly over time doesn't have nearly the same return on investment in terms of your time and attention as investing in things that don't change over time. And to me, one of the fundamental skills that doesn't change over time that's incredibly worth investing in is the ability to make better decisions. Well, that is a compelling burning why I am on board and strapped in raring to go. So let's talk a little bit about some how then. Definitely. So this goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the conversation, the guy named Charlie Munger, right? Munger is a genius, incredible thinker, one of my all-time favorite people. And he's really kind of one of the people that opened my eyes to this concept. And the fundamental principle that he talks about is he sort of coins the term or refers to it as worldly wisdom. And by that, what he means is essentially, if you were to take the kind of core concepts, let's say the top 10 ideas from every major discipline of reality. So I'm talking about everything from biology, physics, chemistry, history, economics, mathematics, right? All of these sort of different fields. Psychology is another huge one. If you just master the ideas that are the fundamental principles that are taught in the 101 course for each of these, and what he actually calls these principles are mental models, right? And you'll hear that term used a lot. And if you Google around, you can find a ton of stuff about mental models and what they are. But mental models are basically each of these individual principles. And if you build a toolbox of mental models from all of the major disciplines that underpin and describe reality, you build a tremendously rich toolkit that allows you to understand not only what's happening, but also how you can impact things to achieve whatever goal it is that you've set out to achieve. And so to me, that's kind of the beginning step is to understand that you want to go out and build this toolkit, right? And there's no kind of quick fix in terms of downloading all of those kind of quote unquote mental models into your mind instantaneously. Not like the matrix. I know Kung Fu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but 
there is a path that you can follow and there is kind of a journey. And the end game and the end goal is essentially to internalize all of these on what, again, Munger calls it sort of a lattice work of mental models inside of your brain. And there's sort of, you know, you have all this theory that's hung on experience and examples and is accessible and usable in a way that's highly impactful. And the idea is, and the end goal, again, is to sort of internalize this to, into your subconscious so that whenever you're in a given situation, you can say, okay, I think that, you know, there's a couple core components at play here. And maybe there's a little bit of XYZ psychological bias kind of factoring in. And I need to think about the following two or three really fundamental principles that are going to govern this. Now, that's a long journey, right? But there is one kind of shortcut or sort of simple thing you can do to help jog your memory. And that is to use checklists. And, you know, once you have sort of a cursory grasp of a lot of these mental models, you can use a checklist to jog your memory and ensure that you don't miss any particular models. And if you Google around for checklist of mental models, and I can give you some links if you want to throw in the show notes from a couple different really good blogs, but there's all kinds of resources on the internet where you can find huge treasure troves of these. And there's two books in particular that I think are the most impactful books for me personally and in terms of just containing a tremendous amount of mental models that you can kind of download into your mind and then create checklists out of so that you can go back and reference them. One of them, and I wouldn't actually recommend starting with this book, but there's a book called Seeking Wisdom by Peter Bevelin. And it's probably the most information-dense book that I've ever read in my entire life. And if I were to show you my copy, the whole book is basically covered in like notes and scribbles and handwriting and tons and tons and tons of notes that I took when I was reading it. And the book is broken into sort of three parts. The first part is kind of an introduction that explains fundamentally the principles that I just talked about. The second component is about 70 pages of what they call the psychology of misjudgment. And that's a list of about 30 mental models from psychology that impact negatively human decision making. And there's a really, really good resource that I can throw out too that sort of around that, that's a good starting place. And they start with psychology for a particular reason. And I think psychology is one of the best places to start because psychology underpins almost all human interaction. And so if you just understand some of the mental models from psychology, you're getting a huge amount of freight just out of those. And then the balance of the book is another 150, 200 pages called what they call the physics and mathematics of misjudgment. And that's things like systems theory and the 80-20 principle and base rates and all of these concepts that once you start to really understand some of them can massively and positively impact your thinking. Ooh, that's good. So we got Seeking Wisdom. Did you say the other book yep. title? So the other book is a book called The Personal MBA by Josh Kaufman. Oh, yeah. And that's more business focused, but it's a great and really, really digestible book that is chock full of all kinds of mental models with kind of a bent towards business, but I think very, very relevant and a great kind of starting place to start to build out your toolkit of mental models. Okay. So this is great stuff. So could you maybe make this come to life a little bit in terms of, you know, you had a decision that you were trying to reach and could you maybe walk us through how you thought about it? You referenced some mental models and you came up with a decision that was satisfactory or dare I say optimal. Definitely. I mean, you know, a decision, and this is kind of a meta decision for my personal life, but one of the things that I've really been, there's actually two fundamental mental models right now that are top of mind for me. One of them is the 80-20 principle, and we can get into that. And the other is 
there's a guy named Ray Dalio, who's the founder of a hedge fund called Bridgewater, which is the largest and most successful hedge fund of all time. And Ray Dalio has a website. It's a free website, principles.org. You can find essentially a list of mental models that he calls his principles that govern reality. And within principles, there's a five-part framework for getting whatever you want in life. And it's a super simple five-part framework, and I can give you the five parts. But between those two things, I've basically, it's a huge focus for me at the moment, is kind of stepping back and thinking about everything that I'm doing in my life and kind of running it through the filter of both the 80-20 principle and Ray Dalio's five-step process to getting whatever you want in life. Okay, super. And so could you run one bias, a decision in terms of, hey, this is the question and this is something that I pulled from these resources or these models and how they informed that and the outcome, the decision that you arrived at. Yeah, absolutely. Upon. I mean, so, you know, a very high level question would be, how do I allocate my time? Right. right. Or another one would be, how do I focus my energies on the most high leverage activities within my business so that I can increase the financial returns from my time spent? So, and I mean, those are sort of interrelated, but just if you're thinking about how do I spend my time, right? The 80-20 principle alone, you can go really, really deep and kind of conduct an 80-20 analysis on your entire life and think about, okay, and I would say the way to do it is actually you should probably do one sort of for your business and for your personal life, but you can look at essentially four questions, right? And actually, before we get into this, just for listeners who aren't familiar with the 80-20 principle or who don't kind of understand the components of it. It's an incredibly powerful principle. It's also known as the Pareto principle. And it's something that governs huge swaths of reality. So everything from the rankings of GDPs of countries to rabbit populations to the allocation of craters on the moon, all these different things are governed by the 80-20 principle. And it's a fractal pattern that kind of repeats itself throughout nature. And it's something that's really, really fascinating. And if you can get it to work for you, it's incredibly powerful. But anyway, going back to the analysis, there's basically four questions you want to ask, right? For your business, you want to ask, what are the 20% of things that are producing 80% of what I want? And what are the 20% of things that are producing 80% of what I don't want? Okay. Right? And you can essentially sort of go through the 20% of things that are creating 80% of what you want and create a list of action items so that you can focus on doing more of that. And then the 20% of things that are creating 80% of what you don't want, you want to create an action, sort of a not-to-do list or a number of action items that you can either kind of find a way to cut that out or stop doing it or outsource it or delegate it or get it off your plate in some way. And similarly, you can do the same thing for your life, right? Which So the other two questions are, what are the 20% of things in my personal life that are giving me 80% of what I want? And what are the 20% of things that are creating 80% of what I don't want? Oh, I love hearing the dark side of that, what I don't want. And so, you know, I'm quite familiar always thinking about, is this the 20%, is this the 20%? But to also look at the 20% of negative causes and forces. So that's good. And then from that, you form action items that you're actually going to execute, right? You form like sort of things you want to do to cultivate the 20% that produce results you like. And you form a plan of action to delegate, eliminate, or outsource the things that you don't like. Okay, great. And so could you share with us something that you determined by going through this thought process? And you're like, wait, what's this about? And sort of take that from beginning to end. Yeah, I would say one of them, you know, we could go back to the example of the podcast, right? When my friend sort of sold his website, I was stuck with all of these different pieces of the podcast that I didn't really understand. I had no idea how to execute and was taking a lot of my time and energy doing the various different pieces of it. and there was a number of activities that I could essentially completely outsource and sort of craft a system 
where I only do the pieces that I want to do and the pieces that are kind of the 20% that produces what I want. And then the other 80% of all the kind of noise and the editing and all the other stuff I could outsource and systematize. And I'll give you specific instances of how, basically, I'll just tell you sort of how the back end of the podcast runs and demonstrate kind of remove myself from everything except for the exact thing that I wanted to be doing, which was having conversations with, you know, smart and interesting people. So the life cycle of an episode, and you've interacted with some of the people on my team, but I have a producer on the show, his name's Austin. And Austin, I basically give Austin some rough guidelines, and sort of a list of some of my favorite authors and bloggers and other people. So Austin sort of goes and hunts the guests down and we've cultivated a template, like an email template that he uses to do all the guest outreach. I used to do 100% of that. I systematized it and given it to Austin. Then Lace, who's my assistant, who we were talking to earlier, Lace's job is to schedule all of the guests. So Lace has very specific parameters. I only do interviews at certain times, I only do them certain days of the week. And part of that's because I want to have time to prep and I want to be in my studio and I don't want to be like running back and forth and have an interview in the middle of the day, like sandwiched by meetings. So Lace has very specific parameters for when she'll schedule an interview. So when an interview comes in, basically, I just see interviews appear on my calendar. Like I don't have to do anything. They just sort of show up and they only show up at times when I'm willing to take an interview. Mm -hmm. What happens is then I go on an interview and actually another component of that is my producer is responsible for doing kind of like a guest research packet. So he knows and we've sort of cultivated exactly what I want in a packet so that I can go through that, find kind of the key components and put together the series of questions that I want to ask the guest. So I do have a little bit of prep before the interview, but basically I take the research packet, specific questions, and then show up and do the interview. From there, I drop it into Dropbox. I have a company that does all my audio production and I just send them a note that's like, hey, this episode's in Dropbox. They edit it, put it in another Dropbox folder, my assistant then takes it, she uploads it to my website, emails it out, you know, does all this stuff to kind of get it posted to our podcast host and everything on the back end. And she knows kind of the cadence and the schedule of when episodes are supposed to go live. And we have an editorial calendar of when which episodes will air. So from that whole cradle to grave process, by sort of analyzing everything and figuring out what was wasting my time and what did I actually not need to do and what did I not want to be doing, I was able to completely remove myself from all the components of the process that didn't take my time and energy. And there's actually still a few little fringe things that I've been kind of doing that I need to move to my assistant. So this is a good reminder that I need to train her on a couple other pieces of the process that I'm still wasting time on. Understood. That's great. And I think it's nice how by taking that time to really think through things, you realize that you're not saddled with it. You have options. There are approaches to outsource. And some folks will think, oh, no one can do it just right or the way I want it. But by taking that time to clearly define you know, what you dig and what you don't dig and how you'd like to have that presented and finding great people who could execute on that, then you're there. So I think that's really key as well is by having taking that time, you're able to arrive at those conclusions as opposed to some folks just sort of assume that they are stuck. If I want this result, then I have to do all the stuff to get it. But you know, in fact, that's not really the case. Totally true. And that's actually harkening back to Ray Dalio, who I mentioned a second ago. One of the fundamental things that he talks about is the idea that there's a five-step process to getting anything you want in life. And you don't have to be the one to execute any given pieces of the process. You just have to find somebody who can help you execute them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fundamental principle that a lot of people don't understand. And it goes back to the importance of improving your ability to sort of think and making time to really think and evaluate things. 
when you have the ability to step back and, and I don't know if you've ever read the book, the E-Myth Revisited, but it's mm-hmm. a great and kind of a classic book about entrepreneurship. One of the fundamental principles in that book is the idea that you should work on your business and not in your business. And unless you cultivate and take the time to step back and think about how things are structured and where you should be spending your time and what the best use of your time is or what the best use of your capital is and how you should sort of be allocating things, you kind of blindly stumble through and end up making a lot of misallocations of your time and your money and essentially wasting a lot of time doing things that you don't necessarily have to be doing. Mm, That's so good. Well, so let me know. Let's see. We talked about mental models, checklists, 80-20 rule. You know, are there any other additional sort of concepts, questions, frameworks that you think are relevant to bring to bear here when we talk about great decision making? There's two things that come to mind. One is, and this is a point that I meant to make earlier, one of the key components of the idea of kind of embarking down the path of making better decisions is not that you are going to become this super genius that makes perfect decisions every time. What it's really about is humans have all kinds of innate psychological and decision-making biases because of the way that our brains evolved, right? Our brains evolved over millions of years to survive in a hunter-gatherer type of society. They didn't evolve to function highly in today's modern world. And so there's all kinds of little shortcuts in our brain that 90% of the time they work out great and they save a ton of cognitive processing power, but occasionally they result in totally ridiculous and in some instances, disastrous outcomes, right? And those are essentially what we call psychological biases. And those are things like confirmation bias. Those are things like commitment, consistency, tendency, anchoring, like all this stuff. All of those things can trip us up. And the point of mastering the art of decision-making is not necessarily to conquer all these things, but it's to, as Charlie Munger puts it, it's to be consistently not stupid, right? right. It's to take out the most blatantly obvious failure points in your decision making process. And just if you're making 10 decisions, and you know, if you're making 10 wrong decisions, eliminate the three dumbest of those decisions by just asking yourself like, hey, am I falling prey to, you know, some kind of psychological bias when I make this? And if you're able to eliminate just a couple of those, that little difference will put you leagues ahead of the, you know, kind of the average person who's not taking the time to internalize a lot of that stuff and not taking the time to really think about it. Mm, That's great. Thank you. Well, Matt, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure you put out there before we hit some of your favorite things? The other thing I was going to throw out there was another kind of specific strategy you can use to concretely implement this is using something called a decision journal, which is basically the idea of anytime you have a major decision, right? Like you don't need to write this down for everything that you're deciding about, but anything that you think is a really important decision that you're actually going to stop and put time and energy into thinking about and evaluating record that decision-making process in a journal where you say, I'm making the following decision. Here are the reasons why. Here's what I predict the kind of likelihood of, you know, X, Y, Z outcomes being, and what's my emotional state at the time that I'm writing this. What that gives you is over time, you can go back to that and see what actually happened and then start to see patterns in your decision-making process and see, okay, are there consistent things where I keep overestimating the probability of something happening or I keep underestimating something happening or I keep making the same decision and it keeps resulting in failure over and over again. You can start to see these patterns in your decision making emerge. And when you crystallize it on a piece of paper, 
it eliminates the ability of what's called hindsight bias to cloud your thinking, right? Hindsight bias is essentially the idea that, you know, let's say you and I decide to start a business venture and we embark on it. And, you know, eight months down the road, it ends up being an abysmal failure. And you think to yourself, I knew that was never going to work out, right? And people constantly do that. They constantly, your mind is designed Mm -hmm. to sort of self-soothe and make yourself mistakes and bad decisions. And so you kind of just very, very, you know, casually sort of rewrite a little piece of the story in your own mind. And you're like, yeah, I knew that wasn't going to happen. Like I always knew that, you know, they were never going to be successful or whatever it is. Well, if you actually really write it down at the time, you remove your ability to deceive yourself about whether or not you actually really thought it was going to fail or what you weighed the probability of failure at at that time. And so decision journals are a great tool for that. Oh, that is powerful. Yes, absolutely. And so I'd be curious to hear then, it's all about sort of the filtration stage, like what's big enough to make the cut in the decision journal. So in your own experience, sort of how often are you putting an input into your own decision journal? It varies, you know, I mean, in, in being in kind of the investment business, you know, there could be a month where I have two or three decisions in there and there could be a month where I have no decisions in there. It really just depends on, and I try to do kind of financial decisions, things that are kind of major allocations of capital or other things in my life. And it really just depends on the flow of deals and other things in terms of what kind of activity is taking place. All right. But I'd say, I mean, maybe like once a month, maybe two or three times a month at most, depending on the level of decisions that you're making. Understood. Well, so now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I would say like a really simple one, a really short quote that I think back to a lot is a quote from Tim Ferriss. Simplicity requires ruthlessness. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Agreed. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? A favorite study. One of my favorites is from the book Influence by Robert Cialdini. Oh, I love it. Yes. And it goes with the commitment consistency bias. And it's a study where the commitment consistency bias is basically the idea that people, if you get them to agree to seemingly innocuous commitments, they later down the road will build kind of this subconscious self-image that can allow you to get them into these monstrously large commitments. And so they did a study with yard signs. And they had these, have you ever seen those giant political signs. I'm not talking about like the little ones that are on like, you know, coat hangers that like stick in your yard. I'm talking about the ones that are on like two by fours that are like these big canvas political signs. They went around and asked people, hey, would you put a sign in your yard that says drive safely? Massive signs. And the vast majority of people said no, right? They then went to sort of a comparable neighborhood and they just really simply went and asked people, hey, would you sign a petition to support safe driving? And Almost everyone did it, right? They came back like three months later and asked that group of people, hey, would you put this ridiculously large drive safely sign in your yard? And it was like 30 or 40% of the people said yes, right? It was a massive, massive increase over what the original kind of commitment rate was. And the only difference is that they had asked them to do this really simple commitment on the front end of, and maybe it was like putting a sticker in their window or it was either signing a petition or putting a sticker in their window. But It was basically this totally innocuous thing that almost anyone would be willing to do. And it had a huge impact on people's willingness to put a giant, you know, kind of ugly sign in their front yard. Oh, that's so good. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? My favorite book? Wow. The one that's had the biggest impact on my entire life is definitely Mindset by Carol Dweck. Oh, yes. Great. And how about a favorite tool, whether it's a product or service or app or something that helps you be awesome at your job? 
I would say Evernote is probably the thing that I live my life on more than anything. I use Evernote for everything. That's so good. And tell us any sort of ninja Evernote tactics that you're using above and beyond just cooking, you know, new note and putting stuff in there. I don't know if it's a ninja tactic, but what I do is a lot of times I'll take paper notes and then I'll just take a picture of it with my phone and save it in Evernote and tag it up. And it's really useful because you get kind of the dual benefits of taking notes by hand, which some research indicates is actually sort of better for your memory. And you get this search function of Evernote. So I can pull up meeting notes from a meeting, you know, five years ago with someone specific and have the exact sort of screenshot of that meeting saved when it has all the specific things we talked about and all the takeaways and everything else. Oh, that's excellent. And is there also, would you say, a resonant nugget, something that you share that really seems to connect with folks that gets them nodding their heads, taking notes, retweeting your stuff? You know, what's the Matt original that seems to be hitting the mark for folks? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, you know, to me, a lot of people don't talk about the idea that you should focus on being as high leverage as possible. And improving your ability to make better decisions is one of the most high leverage things you can do. So to me, that's the nugget that I'm currently sort of most passionate about talking about. Oh, that's great. While we're talking nuggets, I must ask, amongst your podcast guests, has there been an idea or two that you personally found transformational? Like, whoa, you're thinking about and applying it all the time ever since you heard it from that guest? Absolutely. One of the most transformational interviews for me personally was an interview with a woman named Megan Bruno, which probably I don't think many listeners would have heard of her. But that interview was really, really impactful for me. And she kind of couches in the language of perfectionism. And I never considered myself a perfectionist in any way. But she really, really talks about self-acceptance, self-compassion, and how to deal with and accept negative emotions. And that was really instead of trying to kind of fight and wish that I didn't have negative emotions and want them to go away and kind of suppress them, being able to accept them and deal with them in a compassionate way has transformed how I deal with things like stress and anxiety. Mm, That's so great. Thank you. And what would you say is the best place for folks who want to learn more or get in touch? Where would you point them? The easiest thing to do would be to go to scienceofsuccess.co slash better. And on that site, I have something that I put together for your listeners, which is basically a free guide called Four Steps to Making Better Decisions. So for people who want to kind of take the first step and really improve their ability to think better, that's something that they could check out. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. And do you have a final call to action or challenge for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? I would say think about how you can improve your decision-making abilities, right? And that's something that will cascade through everything you do in your work. And I think you'll see a lot of fruit from pursuing that path because it's the path that not many people go down. Oh, perfect. Well, Matt, thank you. This has been such a good time. I wish you lots of luck in making optimal decisions about every investment and everything else. Pete, thank you so much. And I've enjoyed having a conversation with you. Oh, I really dig that. I have been a longtime fan of the 80-20 principle for getting good results but haven't thought about using it for getting rid of bad results. So that was a fun little insight for me. Hope you picked up some good nuggets like that and more. And once again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to some of the key things that we referenced, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep127. And please, I recommend if you haven't already, push that subscribe button so you'll be sure to hear folks like our next guest. We've got another high-achieving, sharp-thinking kind of a guy He's Jeff Cavanaugh. He's partner at Infosys, a $10 billion company. And he talks more about some high leverage mental skills to sharpen your thinking and communication. So I hope to catch you then. And peace. 
Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 